Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Celine Gounder. I'm the host of this show, In Sickness and in Health. If you like our approach to health storytelling, do me a small favor. Help us spread the word about the show. If you're on Twitter, follow us and tweet us at ISIH Podcast. Let us know what's your favorite episode and why. It'll help us bring you more and better stories on the big health issues of the day. Thanks for listening. Now on with the show. We have to figure out who are the people who pose such a high risk that it is justified to limit a constitutional right. So we don't jump to mental illness in cases of you know, the majority of violence that goes on. But in the cases of mass shootings, we often do. This is a law that's going to save lives because in, in these cases, 97% of the time, these people will take their own lives. Welcome back to In Sickness and in Health, a podcast about health and social justice. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This season, we're looking at gun violence in America. Good morning. My fellow Americans, this morning, our nation is overcome with shock, horror, and sorrow. This weekend, more than 80 people were killed or wounded in two evil attacks. President Donald Trump gave a statement in August after the mass shootings in El Paso, Texas and Dayton, Ohio. We must reform our mental health laws to better identify mentally disturbed individuals who may commit acts of violence and make sure those people not only get treatment, but when necessary, involuntary confinement. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger not the gun. Blaming mental illness for gun violence is nothing new for the president or his party. But his next words raise some eyebrows. We must make sure that those judged to pose a grave risk to public safety do not have access to firearms, and that if they do, those firearms can be taken through rapid due process. That is why I have called for red flag laws also known as extreme risk protection orders. This latest cluster of mass shootings has a lot of people talking about these kinds of laws. Extreme risk protection orders allow authorities to temporarily remove guns from someone who's a threat to themselves or others. They already exist in 17 states and the District of Columbia. In Dayton, Ohio, the crowded a vigil for victims and survivors of the shooting demanded Ohio Governor Mike DeWine do something about guns. Their chant went viral. Days later, Governor DeWine gave his own press conference. Some in the crowd were angry. In fact, I'm sure everybody was angry. Some chanted, do something. And they were absolutely right. We must do something. And that is exactly what we are going to do. That's why today I'm asking the legislature to pass a law to allow courts to issue safety protection orders. Mental illness is usually one of the first things politicians blame for these shootings. But mental illness isn't the driver of violence many people think it is. 
the likelihood of a psychiatric patient discharged from a hospital doing something violent with a gun in terms of absolute risk is 2%. There are limits to what the mental health system can do to prevent violence before a crime has been committed. They thought he was dangerous too, but again, if he wasn't arrested and if he hadn't been committed to a psychiatric hospital, he was legally allowed to own the guns. But red flag laws have stopped some mass shootings already. And they're even more effective when it comes to suicide prevention. If they had been able to hold on to his gun for a little while while that crisis period passed, I believe he might still be alive today. On today's episode of In Sickness and in Health, extreme risk protection orders and mental illness. I tried you on your cell. I'm not quite sure. It's just not going through. It's going straight to voicemail. Um, uh, let's see. Okay. Um, got. I've got uh, my landline in one hand. I've got my cell phone in the other hand. Okay. Let's just uh, stick with the landline then. I mean, it's not perfect, okay. but um, it's better than uh, nothing. <laughs> um, sure. The guy I'm trying to get on the phone with is Tom Sullivan. I am the father of Alex Sullivan, who was murdered on July 20th, 2012, in the Aurora Theater Massacre uh, while he celebrated his uh, 27th birthday. A lot of gun laws were passed in Colorado since the shootings in Aurora and Sandy Hook. Year after year, Tom was a regular fixture at the Colorado State House to make sure those laws weren't rolled back. And then he made the decision to do more than advocate. Now, why did you decide to run for state office? Well, it's, it's, it's like the old, old saying, and I think it was maybe John Dillinger, they asked him, you know, why do you keep robbing the banks? And it was, his response was, well, that's where the money is. Um, and in, in this case, um, in the legislature, that's where they make the laws. So that's where I needed to be. Because standing out in front on the, on the steps, making a speech, um, writing an op-ed, um, talking to legislators, the going to rallies, um, all of that only took you so far. You have, have to actually be in the, uh, the chamber and have a seat um, to be able to uh, enact uh, and, and propose um, legislation. And uh, that's what I saw needed to happen. Tom won the seat in 2018. One of the first things Tom did as state representative was sponsor a bill for an extreme risk protection order. It uh, gives law enforcement or a, a family member to petition the court to temporarily remove firearms from someone who has been deemed to be a danger to themselves or others. Guns can be removed for 14 days. Then the individual and law enforcement go before a judge. And at that point, they will both state their cases um, as to, you know, what the problems are and, you know, whether, you know, things were blown out of proportion or um, someone really is, is in the throes of, of some kind of episode. If the judge doesn't think there's anything wrong, the person can reclaim their guns. But if the judge thinks that person poses a threat the guns can be held for 364 days. 
What we have found is that in some of these, these instances, after the 364 days, the extreme risk protection order has been removed, and this individual then finds out that, you know what, maybe I didn't really need them, okay, and they never come and pick them up. Because that, that's what, whatever the problems were, whatever the concerns were that they were having, those have been alleviated, and, and the, the answer wasn't, you know, having an arsenal of firearms. Before we get too far, I want to take a step back. The narrative lots of politicians push about extreme risk protection orders is usually focused on mental illness. You hear it all the time from our president. He's a very sick, he's a, it's a mental health problem. He is a very sick Puppy. It was a very, very sick guy. Mental illness and hatred pulls the trigger, not the gun. If you look at both of these cases, this is mental illness. These are really people that are very, very seriously mentally ill. But is this even true? Are people with a mental illness really more dangerous than the average person? The stereotype is that someone is in a psychotic episode and they're just, uh, they go out and shoot a bunch of strangers. I mean, if you learned everything you knew about schizophrenia by watching television in this country, you'd think every person with that illness was a homicidal monster. This is Jeffrey Swanson. He's a professor in psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Duke University School of Medicine. If you were to predict on the basis of, okay, this is a patient with an acute psychiatric disorder, has been hospitalized, we think you're going to do something violent with a gun in the next year, you'd be wrong 98% of the time. That's according to a report from the MacArthur Research Network. This report followed more than 1,000 people who'd been hospitalized for a psychiatric crisis and were then released. The idea was to track these people and see what, if any, violence they committed after their release. So what did they find out? They found that, you know, serious violence was uh, infrequent. Minor violence was a little more common, but it was no more common, actually, in the patients who had been discharged from a psychiatric hospital than it was in a sample of randomly selected people who are living in the same census tracts. So the report found that people with mental illness are no more likely to hurt someone else than the average person. But if mental illness isn't driving violent behavior, what is? Substance abuse was the big deal. So if people had uh, co-occurring substance abuse, which was more, quite a bit more common in psychiatric patients, then their violence risk was um, much higher. If you were to you know, magically cure schizophrenia and depression and bipolar disorder tomorrow, uh, violence against other people, would go down by about 4%. If we cured substance abuse, alcohol use disorder and illicit drug use disorders, violence against other people would go down by about, you know, 35% or 40%. Childhood trauma and a history of violent behavior are both better predictors of future violent behavior than is mental illness. And many times, the cause of violence isn't some paranoid delusion. It's conflict that emerges from the same triggers we all encounter. These are people who, by and large, are violent for the same reasons other people are violent. Psychopathology doesn't add a whole lot to that. Mass shootings seem so horrifying, so irrational, that it feels like the only plausible explanation for such an act must be that the shooter 
was totally disconnected from reality, that they must be psychotic, insane, not like the rest of us. It's really just in this context of mass shootings that somehow people make this leap to think, well, this person's obviously mentally ill because what kind of sane person would do something like this? This is Amy Barnhorst. She's a psychiatrist at the UC Davis Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. There's not really a strong correlation there in terms of people wanting to commit mass shootings because of delusional beliefs or voices in their head. Oftentimes it really is driven by you know, the same stuff, poor impulse control, anger, entitlement, a desire for vengeance. Amy says these traits aren't healthy, but they don't constitute a severe mental illness either. Antisocial behavior does not qualify as a mental illness. Antisocial behavior is just a reckless disregard for the rights of others and a willingness to commit criminal or violent acts to get what you want. It's kind of the definition of being a criminal, really. It's not really a mental illness. The more important question is whether or not if we were to hospitalize that person, could we get them any better and make them less dangerous? And the answer is no. There's no treatment for that. There are only a few scenarios that prevent someone from buying guns legally. Felons, someone with a domestic abuse charge, and someone who's been involuntarily committed for a mental illness. But if a would-be shooter never seeks psychiatric treatment, he'll never get diagnosed. If he's never committed a crime before, there's no grounds to block him from buying guns. And even if he can't buy a gun, few states have measures to remove the guns he might already have. All these issues came to a head in 2014, when a gunman in Santa Barbara, California, killed six people and injured another 14. His parents had actually called up to Santa Barbara and requested that somebody go and check on him. So the sheriffs went to his house because they were really worried about him committing an act of violence. And they interviewed him, and he seemed very well put together. He didn't seem in the least bit mentally ill. He said he was fine. He denied any plans of violence or suicidality. They didn't, you know, search his house because they couldn't. And he had a whole closet full of semi-automatic weapons and ammo. And about two weeks later, he went out and killed a bunch of people. California took note. The state passed a version of an extreme risk protection order that took effect in 2016. It's called a Gun Violence Restraining Order, or GVRO. A gun violence restraining order allows family members or police to petition to have a firearm removed from someone's custody in the absence of a mental health history, a civil commitment, a criminal charge, just based on dangerousness. Had the police had something like a gun violence restraining order or the parents been able to file, they might have done that and given the police the right to go in and remove his weapons from his possession or prohibit him from buying more weapons and thwarted that whole event. A preliminary study estimates that more than 20 mass shootings were prevented in California between 2016 and 2018, thanks to its red flag law. One of those was a man who threatened to kill his coworkers and when they found out that he had just recently tried to buy a shotgun, they were two days from the time that the gun was going to be released when the GVRO was filed. And so the retailer wasn't able to release the gun. Another one was a potential terrorist incident with a younger man who had been possibly radicalized online, but had gone to travel in um, Turkey and Syria and he was in the midst also of purchasing a K-47 and was in the waiting period 
And it was, there was some concern that he was planning a mass shooting at some big public events that were going on. And so the law enforcement obtained a GVRO and he also was not able to pick up the rifle that he had already purchased. Amy has firsthand experience with these gun restraining orders. She directs a psychiatric crisis center where police sometimes bring her someone they're worried about. Sometimes I've told law enforcement, hey, I think it's great that you brought this person in for mental health evaluation and we're gonna really take a good look and see if there's anything we can do for them. In the event that they don't make it that far down the pathway, you might wanna consider filing a GVRO just to make sure they don't have access to weapons in the meantime. The other time I've used it is when I've had a patient who was suicidal. Almost two-thirds of gun-related deaths in the U.S. are suicides, and extreme risk protection orders have proven to be very effective when it comes to preventing suicide. Jeffrey Swanson conducted a study of people who had guns removed from their homes under the extreme risk protection order law in Connecticut. The average number of guns removed was seven guns per person, so these are people who have a lot of guns. And then, uh, interestingly, when we matched the death records out several years follow-up, we found a very high suicide rate, as I had mentioned, about 40 times higher than the general population, but only a handful of gun suicides. And none of the gun suicides happened during the year when the firearms had been retained by the police. They all happened after the person became eligible a year later to get their guns back. A suicide rate 40 times higher than the average person. This means these extreme risk protection orders aren't being applied arbitrarily. They're keeping guns away from the people most at risk for suicide. We found, based on that analysis, that a bunch of lives were saved just by simply removing the access to really efficient killing technology. How many gun removal actions do you need to do in order to save one life? For every 10 to 20, one life was saved. So then you say, well, is that high or low? Well, you know, if you're someone who really cares about the Second Amendment right, you might think that's unacceptable. If you're someone like me and you have suicides in your own extended family, gun suicides, you might think about it differently. Julia Spohr is someone in that second camp. My name is Julia Spohr. I'm 17 years old. I'm from near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And I am a gun violence prevention activist. I asked Julia to tell me about her dad, Scott. My dad was kind of my best friend. He would always be, you know, just cracking jokes, making my sister and I laugh. So I remember one time we went to the grocery store and he just picked out a carton of eggs from the refrigerator and, um, he was just picking them up and goofing around and he dropped one and we ended up having to buy the carton of eggs and he was cleaning it up and it was for my sister who is six years older she was in middle school at the time she was so embarrassed um he was just making a fool of himself and she was so worried that she would you know run into someone she knew and she would be so embarrassed but I thought it was the funniest thing ever Julia's dad like a lot of Americans, had a handgun. My dad would go target shooting with his handgun. He would shoot at um, cans and um, empty milk jugs and things like that. And um, my sister and I were never a part of that. He didn't want us near the gun. It was always stored safely in the home. I never knew where it was, but he had 
after he purchased his gun, he developed depression. I didn't really notice that anything was wrong. I know my sister noticed that uh, his personality was changing a little bit. She knew that um, he had been hospitalized two times before for suicide attempts. When I, um, you know, didn't really know the full story, I didn't really know where he was, and I honestly just didn't think much of it because he always came back. The first two times he attempted suicide was using medication and alcohol. So after his first suicide attempt, um, he came home with this sheet and it told my mom and my family members that if there was a gun in the house, we should probably lock it up or remove it if we think that's necessary. So my mom relocated the gun it was still in the house but um she hid it from my dad but in September later that year in 2009 when he decided that he wanted to um die by suicide he just found the gun Julia lost her dad just before her eighth birthday her family was living in Florida at the time back then there was no mechanism for the authorities to remove the gun from the house. I think that it would have been just a great resource for my mom to have as an option to go to the police and say that her husband has just attempted suicide twice. Like, this is a perfect example of someone who should not have a gun. He's clearly a risk to himself right now. And you know, maybe not permanently, but if they had been able to hold on to his gun for a little while while that crisis period passed in his life, and maybe he could have focused more on getting better and um, recovering and improving himself, I believe that he, he wouldn't have died and he might still be alive today. This experience, along with the rash of school shootings in the U.S., made Julia a gun safety activist. I've kind of tried to turn any negative feelings I have and any, you know, upsetting grief I have into action. And the way that I see fit is through activism and through gun violence prevention. So that's that's what I've been mainly focused on in terms of grieving the loss of my dad for the last probably four or five years now. Julia founded a group called Students Demand Action. They focus on voter registration, especially for students, and what Julia calls common sense gun laws. I think extreme risk protection orders are important for all states to have. There should be something in place for people who present themselves as risks to either themselves, like my father, or someone else like the shooter in Parkland and shooting shooters in so many of these mass shooting situations that I've seen my entire life. So I don't know necessarily if they would have prevented that one incident, but I know that every day there are incidents that happen that could have been prevented if 
extreme risk protection orders had been in place and had been utilized properly. Tom Sullivan, the father of Alex Sullivan, who died in the Aurora shooting, doesn't think an extreme risk protection order would have saved his son. But he thinks red flag laws might save others from another mass shooter or suicide. For Tom, a few weeks without a gun in the home might save someone's life. Now, if we've made a mistake or someone gets things taken care of, we can fix a temporary removal, okay? What you can't do is if that person gets to the point that they put the the firearm underneath their chin and pull the trigger or point it at at the wife and the kids and, and kill them and then kill themselves. That's a permanent, that's a permanent action. Okay, we can't do anything about that except grieve afterwards. These laws are controversial despite their life-saving potential. After the extreme risk protection order bill was signed into law, Tom faced a recall vote. In June, gun rights activists finally dropped their recall efforts, but there remain strong headwinds against any gun regulation. Mike DeWine called for red flag laws after the Dayton shooting. But he's not the first Ohio governor to try to pass an extreme risk protection order bill. DeWine's predecessor, former Governor John Kasich, proposed similar legislation when he was in office that went nowhere. That's legislation that might have stopped the Dayton shooter. With Congress back from its summer recess, we'll have to see if these latest shootings can push U.S. lawmakers to take action. The House Judiciary Committee passed the Extreme Risk Protection Order Act in September. We're still waiting on the full House and the Senate to take up the bill. Extreme risk protection orders aren't perfect solutions. Some may be afraid to report concerning behaviors because they don't want to get a family member or friend in trouble. Others won't take seriously the warning signs they've observed. But these laws have had a measurable impact and saved lives in the states that have passed them. 33 states still don't have red flag laws. A federal law could help change that. The president has said he wants real solutions on gun violence. We're all waiting to hear what those solutions are. For more information about extreme risk protection orders, how they work, and how to implement them, check out the Johns Hopkins website, americanhealth.jhu.edu slash implement ERPO. That's americanhealth.jhu.edu slash implement ERPO. If someone you know is in crisis or thinking of hurting themselves, do not leave them alone. Remove any firearms, alcohol, drugs, or sharp objects that could be used in a suicide attempt. Take them to an emergency room or seek help from a medical or mental health professional. Call the U.S. National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-TALK. That's 800-273-8255. Or text the Crisis Text Line at 741-741. Another resource for LGBTQ youth is the Trevor Project's Lifeline at 866-488-7386. Today's episode of In Sickness and in Health was produced by Zach Dyer and me. Our theme music is by Alan Vest. 
Additional music by the Blue Dot Sessions. Audio from Dayton, Ohio via Twitter from Annie Rose Ramos. If you enjoy the show, please tell a friend about it today. And if you haven't already done so, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people find out about the show. You can learn more about this podcast and how to engage with us on social media at insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. That's insicknessandinhealthpodcast.com. I'm Dr. Celine Gounder. This is In Sickness and in Health.